So thank you, Sam, for playing with us, man. We appreciate it. I asked, I said, wait, today's not Chris's last Sunday, too. We can't handle that much emotion in one week. So one more week, one more week. Um, so we're taking a, uh, just a one-week break from our Life Stories series. We'll continue that next week. And I think next week is Gino and Patty, right? You guys are going to tag team. Is that right? So, yeah. Patty does not look too thrilled. Why is that? Gino's smiling and Patty's over here. I don't know. Maybe it's just going to be Gino. We'll see. It'll be great. It'll be great. So we're taking a break from Life Stories this week, and I decided to do uh, the talk that I did in New York City at our church plant, Trinity Heights Church, uh, because um, the students that were on that trip with us, um, they weren't with me at that church, and so no no one's heard this message before. And so the students that were on that trip with us, they didn't hear the message. The question is why? The answer is because Baltimore. Baltimore. So, um, in fact, when I... Today we're talking about feelings and emotions. That's what we're going to discuss today. So when I just say the word Baltimore to the New York team, what feelings come to mind? Just shout out some, what's this? Love, tiredness. I'm not sure that's an emotion though. What else? Oh my gosh, don't even start with that. Wow, this needs to be PG. This is church. All right, so... Well, yeah, so you, I'm not going to continue the, the dialogue because it can go south really quickly, as you just saw just there. So, um, but yeah, you probably have emotions that sort of come into play when you think about that city, Baltimore. Baltimore, right? Just the word probably connotes some, like, feelings in you that you don't really like. And uh, so if you, didn't, if you didn't know already, if you haven't heard, um, my wife and I took a train to New York from Washington, D.C., and the team is flying from Dallas to New York City, and I'm Googling their flight throughout their flight to make sure it's on time and stuff. And, and I'm in this big, like, shopping mall with my wife, and we're just hanging out. And uh, I finally Google the flight, and it says, diverted to Baltimore. I'm like, what? And so what's going to happen now? So they end up staying the night in the Baltimore airport the entire night. And some of our students love to say to me, um, Dave, it was the first ever co-ed all-nighter that we had at TBC, you know, because they're in the airport all night. So that happened. And then... Um, they fly in at like 7 a.m. the next morning into, into New York, and I'm heading off to go preach at this church. And I wasn't about to be like, hey, guys, come with me, <laughs> you know, to this church uh, service. So um, they would have slept right through it like most of my sermons. So, yeah, that would have happened. Um, so we're going to talk about emotions and feelings today. And there are lots of misconceptions. Uh, this is really going to be a theology of emotion. And even the words theology and emotion don't seem to go together. Theology sounds high, lofty, and academic. Emotion seems to fit in some other faraway category. But this is why I think we need a theology of emotion. I think the Bible has a lot to say about this topic. Uh, A few, maybe like a month ago, here at TBC, we were saying goodbye to one of the amazing ladies in the office. She was about to move on to Austin, and she'd been here for a few years. And we're having a going away party for her. And everyone's sharing encouraging thoughts about Leslie as we went around and talked about her. And one of the other office ladies began to talk and began to share about Leslie. And then the one sharing started to get emotional. Now, as she started to get emotional and choked up, what do you think she said? Any idea? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. She says, I'm sorry. So there's something in us. If we start to get a little emotional, we instantly 
apologize. Have you noticed that? No one ever says, I'm sorry, I'm not emotional. No one ever says, I'm sorry, I'm so stoic, right? Or you may have heard the statement, um, stop being so emotional. No one ever says, start being so emotional, right? We have this negative connotation with emotions, and I think we all do this. And uh, there's a quote I want to read to you by Matthew Elliott. He says, for years we've been taught by our culture and in our churches that emotions are not to be trusted, that reason and knowledge and logic are the firm foundation on which to build our faith and our spiritual lives, that it's our attitudes and actions that matter, not how we feel about things. You may have heard this put forth in some way, whether it's said or unsaid in the church. Just the attitude towards emotion can be negative, and we see it as negative. There is this idea, it doesn't matter what you feel as long as you obey. That sounds like a good Christian idea. It doesn't matter what you feel as long as you obey. There are, just look at some of the the Christian book titles on emotion. Look at these. Deadly emotions. Managing your emotions instead of them, your emotions managing you. A woman's forbidden emotion. Emotions, can you trust them? Those ugly emotions winning over your emotions. These are Christian book titles on this topic, right? So this negative perception forces us to vacillate between these two extremes on how we tend to handle emotion. The two extremes are this. We're either ruled by emotion or we are people that stuff emotion. Just stuff it down, ignore it. So ruled by it or we tend to stuff emotion. And we tend to pit these two categories against each other, don't we? Maybe you're a Christ follower and you've seen these two extremes in the church. And so you've gone, maybe you've grown up in a family where Everyone stuffs emotion in your family, and so you've adopted the opposite, which is you celebrate emotion, you vent, you, you give full life to all your emotions. Or maybe you're a, a family that your family just feels dramatic, and so you tend to be like, that is just dramatic chaos, I want no part of it. And so you choose to stuff your emotion as a way to bring balance and order to your family structure in life. So we usually veer one way or the other based on personality. Maybe you're a skeptic, not yet a Christ follower. Maybe you just see following Christ as this passionless, joyless existence. And I don't think either one of these two extremes need to be the way that we go. There might be a third way. And I want to introduce that third way to you this morning. So turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. If God created us with emotions, then what role should they play in our lives? Look at Romans chapter 12. We'll look at verse 9 through 15. Romans 12, 9 through 15. Paul writes, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. And do not be conceited. I want you to pay attention to how many words in that passage have emotion tied to them. Just as you go through the whole passage. And if I can summarize this passage, I would say it this way. How we feel really matters. 
We see emotional language all over this passage. We see words like love, hate, honor, zeal, spiritual fervor, joy, hope, rejoice, and weep. This is emotional language. And Paul is, God through Paul is commanding these people to be experiencing these emotions. So Paul tells the Romans to truly love each other. He says you should really hate evil. He says love with genuine affection. You should delight in honoring each other. You should serve God enthusiastically and rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Paul is not saying to just do these things in an emotionally detached way, but to actually feel a certain way as we do them. Now, I think for you and I, we expect to see that God commands our actions, right? We expect that from the Bible, that God's going to command what we do. But what about our emotions? I mean, can God really command an emotion? You've heard the expression, you know, I can't control how I feel. I just feel, so I can't control how I feel. So can God really command an emotion? I want you to take a little look closer at just one of these concepts, the concept of hating what is evil. When God says to hate what's evil, is he saying just don't commit acts of evil? Or is he saying, is he saying it's okay to be drawn to evil as long as you don't do something evil? It sounds like he's telling these people to feel a certain way about evil, and this is where I think many Christians get it wrong. We say things like, well, as long as you're obeying God, it doesn't matter how you feel. Your emotions don't really matter. But this passage seems to say that emotions do. It's saying we really should love people, we really should delight in honoring people, rejoice, really weep. In the Bible, God seems to want emotion to move us and to move us in a direction. This next quote says, Many buy into the misconception that to be moved by emotion is a bad thing. As Christians, we are fond of telling each other, don't be led by your emotions. This is partially true. We should not be led by our emotions into sin, but emotions are supposed to move us. God gave us emotions to move us toward himself in love and obedience. I think about, as you know, in this church for the last several years, there's been this huge move towards adoption, which is really, really amazing. And you've seen it play out with different families. I think of the Ron Slavens and adopting Lyra, spending six years trying to adopt that little girl. And let me just ask you this question. Do you think when the Ron Slavens went into that orphanage for the first time and saw that little girl with no parents, do you think they just stood there coldly and said, yeah, there's that one verse in James, something about True religion in the sight of God is to care for widows and orphans, so we probably should do that. Or do you think there was some emotion involved in the decision? I would bet that there was a lot of emotion involved in that decision. And this is how God wants emotion to work in our lives. God wants emotion to move us towards something. And this is the right and proper use of how emotions should be used in the life of a believer. So if God wants emotions to move us towards himself and other people, what about emotions that we might see as negative? What about things like fear, sadness, and anger? 
And might God have a purpose even for these? Fear, sadness, and anger might be the, what we would call the unholy trinity of emotion. The ones that we're most tempted to stuff down and to ignore. And so what happens if we ignore even what we might see as these negative emotions, fear, sadness, anger? A.W. Tozer, an old dead guy, says this, God intended that truth should move us to moral action, but be sure that human feelings can never be completely stifled. If they are forbidden their normal course, like a river, they will cut another channel through the life and flow out to curse and ruin and destroy. When you and I stuff down even the emotion that we see as negative emotion, it will find another channel in your life, and it will find a way out, and it will usually come out in destructive ways. I think of we were uh, seeing my family the week before New York City, the New York City mission trip. And there's a person in my family that I know that person's childhood was traumatized based on how their mother treated them. And that this person's mother caused lots and lots of fear and anxiety in this person's life in their youth. And now this person is much, much older. And I will tell you, this person has never dealt with their fear and anxiety and worry and how they were brought up. And sometimes it comes out, this person lashes out in anger, and you never know when it's going to come. And so what has happened is that the emotion he's never dealt with will chart its course and find its way, and it usually comes out in anger and lashing out and mowing everybody down. And this is how it looks. And it's what can happen to us. We've been looking the last few weeks at this thing called life stories, and I have loved hearing everyone's stories. They've all, they've all been so unique. And every person's story can be linked, I think, to one of these kinds of emotions, fear, sadness, or anger. And you've heard those a lot throughout these talks, and you're going to probably hear more the next couple of weeks. So let's look for a moment at fear. A few weeks ago, I shared my story with you on the stage and how I came to follow Christ. And I told you that fear, anxiety, and worry marked my life and in some ways still do. There's, those have been some threads in my life that have run through my life story. And when I was young, I had lots of fears. I talked to you about fear of heights, fear of water when I was a really small kid. Um, even the drive to excel academically or athletically was often rooted in a fear of failure and a fear of looking stupid. Even how I started following Christ was rooted in some fears. And as I got older into college, I was serving in the church and working with high school students, but I didn't want to do this for a job. And the main reason why was because I didn't want to do this thing on a stage. I was like, I don't want to do the public speaking thing. I'll do the small group thing, but I want to do the public speaking thing. And I had a fear of that. And it was a fear of rejection. And But God taught me something through that. When I'm confronted by fear, we really have three options. The first is to be ruled by emotion. The second is to stuff our emotions. And the third is to ask some deeper questions. So a great question to ask would be for you or for me is, what's really behind this fear? When I was young, 
my fear of being on a stage and speaking in front of people, at first it looks like humility, right? At first it looks like, oh, you're just being humble. Like you don't want to be the center of attention. You don't want to be up on the stage. And at first it looks like humility, but when you really get to the root of it, it's really about pride because I'm afraid of how I'm going to look. And really what it shows is that I'm, I'm so closely attaching my significance to what I do and a fear of failing at it. And that's really the idol. That's really the root of the fear. It's not humility. It's really a pride. So when I ask these deeper questions, my idols get exposed. And the great thing about your idols getting exposed is that now you can turn away from the idol and turn towards Jesus in repentance. And that's the blessing of having your idols exposed. And so let's look at something like sadness. How in the world can God use sadness? I think we could say that sadness and fear are connected. Because sadness is what occurs when your worst fears are realized. The Bible even says there's a time to be sad. So in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, it says, For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, and a time to die. A time to weep, and a time to laugh. And a time to mourn, and a time to dance. There are times when grieving and mourning are proper and good. I've seen this trend recently when I've attended funerals. And I get what we're trying to do, but I've been bothered by it. I've seen this trend with funerals recently where, where it's like everyone's trying to be so upbeat, and, and they call it, this is not a funeral, it's a celebration of life. And I get it, I understand it, but to me it seems like it falls short that when someone dies that we really care for, there should be some sadness, Right? That, that seems good and right. There should be some sadness. I mean, I at least hope someone's sad at my funeral. I hope. A little bit. There should be some sadness. I read recently in The Telegraph, which is a paper over in the UK, an article by a woman who lost her husband at an early age, and she writes that years later about her struggle with grief, she says, Public displays of emotion are still largely a cause for discomfort. We do not know how to witness another's pain, simply to stand by them as they grieve. So grief and sadness become private, hidden, shameful even. I even found it hard to cry in front of myself. Perhaps I was afraid that if I let go into the sadness, I might never find my way out. She says, 10 years on, and I know that I am phenomenally strong, but that strength comes from vulnerability, from allowing myself to experience feelings rather than hide them or hide from them. When we lose someone that is meaningful to us, we grieve because it means their life carried some weight in our lives. That person affected us. You might say it like this. Sadness is to think rightly about things that are wrong. There is a rightness to sadness. As hard as it might be, there is a rightness to sadness. Death should always feel wrong. It should never feel right. 
Sadness is our way of thinking rightly about death. I think some of us, whenever we start following Christ, we just think it's going to lead to all this external happiness. We think, you know, I'm going to start following Jesus, and it's going to lead to all this external happiness, and my life's going to be ordered. And what you don't realize is sometimes when you become a Christian, you become aware of how things really are. And it might not lead to more happiness. Tim Keller says, it's possible that being a Christian might lead you to weep more than if you weren't a Christian at all. Why is that? You feel the pangs of evil, whereas before you did not. When you start following Christ, you begin to see things as they are. And it might lead to more sadness. Ultimately, life might become heavier. Like when you think of the of tragedies that took place the last 24 hours in our country, there is a rightness to be sad about that and to grieve that. And when you don't, we would say there's something wrong with us if we don't. And even for the Christian, that might feel heavier to the Christian than the person who's not even a Christian. It's right for us to feel sad about some things. So what about anger? I think we can see a relationship between anger and these other two emotions, fear and sadness. Because sometimes people get angry as a way to hide fear and sadness. Especially for us men. I think when you see a young man, whether it's teen, whether it's a young adult, even an older man, and there's a lot of anger that can come out of us men. And when you see a man who is angry a lot, you can usually tie it back to some fear and sadness that took place early in life that was never dealt with. And so it will come out in some way, and it usually comes out through anger. I think it's common for people to think, and not making light of this, but it's common for people to think to put women in the emotional category and men in the not emotional category. And I think that's complete, completely false. Because have you ever been watching a, a sporting event and one guy does something to another guy and suddenly it's just on? I mean, it's a bench-clearing brawl. And I watch that and I laugh at the idea that men aren't emotional. I mean, that is comical to me that we think men aren't emotional when you see fully grown men that can't control themselves. Men are emotional. It might come out in different ways, but we are also emotional. Everyone is emotional. You can't, you can't say no one's emotional. The emotion of anger might be the only culturally acceptable emotion out of the three, fear, sadness, and anger? Because most of us are afraid to admit that we're fearful of things. You get the irony? And most of us don't want to talk about sadness and admit sadness. But anger, anger's the one that might be the most culturally acceptable emotion. If you go 
to work or go to school on a day, and you've just had a day, and you come home, you're allowed to be angry about that. You can vent to your parents, vent to your family, vent to your friends, and they're going to be like, what? What happened to you? And they're not going to critique your anger. They're going to affirm it. It might be the most culturally acceptable emotion for us to have, but if we don't deal with it in the proper way, it can cause all kind of destruction. So when have you been most angry? I mean, besides Baltimore, when have you been most angry in your life? I would say for me, Baltimore. Do it for Baltimore. I would say for me, this was many years ago now. I can't recall what year it was, but uh, there was a time when some dude came into my house to do some electrical work many years ago, and we just weren't paying attention. My wife went to the gym to go work out. I was at home watching the house while they were there and stuff, and some dude back in the bedroom stole my wife's diamond engagement ring, and I found out about it after they left and I called the cops, and I made this big, crazy sting operation where they're going to show up back to the house under the idea that something's not working right. What they came to fix is no longer working. They need to come back to the house. Got them back to the house. I called the cops. The cops show up, and they're going to intercept these guys. I mean, they searched that entire van. They searched everywhere. We never got the ring back. And I was livid. I was so ticked off at the world for more than a week. I mean, it just was eating at me that this person who I hired and brought into my house came and took the thing that I poured blood and sweat into to ask her to marry me. Are you kidding me? And I was so angry, so angry about it. Fortunately, we had insurance. We got another one. But the one she wears on her hand right now is not the one I gave her, and that still eats me up sometimes. And so I was angry because of this, angry for weeks. And there are times when anger is justified. But if we stay in this place of anger, it can lead to this cynicism and bitterness and, and hatred. And so all anger isn't bad, but all anger isn't good. So if you, for example, so if you, if you hear about child abuse, it should make you angry. Do you know that the county we live in, Bell County, is one of the worst for child abuse in Texas? There should be a righteous anger that comes out of us when we hear those kind of things. But this, should, this still should not turn into a hatred of some people. John Calvin says there are three ways to be wrong in anger. One is general anger at someone. Anger carried too far, and then anger towards the person instead of the sin. So often, our anger leads to a hatred, or we get angry at the person rather than the sin. And I think God wants our anger to be like his, which is angry about the right things and in the right way. One thing, it's so funny how this all ties. I wasn't planning on doing this message today until Friday, okay? And it's funny how things tie together because this was in my notes in New York, and I'm going to say it again here, and it ties into our event on Wednesday. But it's right to be angry about the right things and in the right way. And one thing that I'll remind you of is uh, Candace Cartwright. 
the wife of Tim Cartwright, she had this vision when she adopted, when they adopted little Owen through foster care and foster to adopt, she had this vision of, I want to help kids that are going through the foster system. So when a kid is pulled out of a house one night, where do they go? Those first few nights. And this is a burden on her heart. And so she started this thing called Foster Love Bell County. It's a house over by UMHB. And you should see the inside of this place. They've remodeled it. It looks, it looks really amazing. And this is a place where a CPS worker or a supervisor can come and stay a few nights with a kid or some kids that are in a transition from the home that they're in to the next home they're going to be in. And the place is an oasis. You walk in that place, and it just feels like a kid would want to be in here. And imagine the horror of where they just came from. And now they get to be in here for at least a few days and be loved on by people, ministered from from other people. It's a vision that she had. So she took her righteous anger and she channeled it to something that God wanted her to do and God called her to do. And she set up Foster Love Bell County. The big idea is that God gives us emotions to move us towards him and other people. But so often in the church, we shut off feeling and just focus on belief or just obedience. But God creates us to feel things. And if we ignore it, we might miss out on what God's calling us to do. C.S. Lewis says, the more often a person feels without acting, the less he will be able, he will be able to act, and in the long run, the less he'll be able to feel. Whenever you and I shut off feeling and don't allow it to cause us to move towards God's kingdom and his mission or other people, the less you'll be able to feel. You recognize that? The more you rebel against the good things God's placed in you and those feelings, the more calloused you become, the more hardened you become. It's also how repentance works. The further you go down this road into sin and unrepentance, and the more you act in sinful ways and carry those things out, the more hardened and calloused you become, making repentance that much more difficult. This is how we, we, we operate. And so what role should emotion play in our lives? Matthew Elliott says, Our emotion reveals truth about ourselves and our beliefs. To evaluate our emotion properly, first we must acknowledge what it is. Then we must acknowledge what it tells us about our belief. He goes on to say, you cannot change the emotion by dwelling on the emotion itself, but you can change the emotion by dwelling on and changing the beliefs and evaluations that lie behind it. So the point is not to focus just on the emotion, but to acknowledge it, whether it's good or bad, and then acknowledge the beliefs that lie behind the emotion. And that's where the real work takes place in our spiritual growth. So how we handle emotions should not be a mystery to us. Because you can look at the Psalms. Open the Psalms. Read the Psalms. And you will see people writing in the Psalms when they're experiencing fear, sadness, and anger. You see it all over the Psalms. I love when students ask questions like, what do I do when I don't feel God? Or what do I do when I feel angry at God? Or when I feel sad? And here's the most amazing thing about the Bible. God has given us 
many, many books in the Bible that deal with these kinds of things, but especially the Psalms. If the Psalms show us anything, it's that when you're in the miry pit of your emotions, the Psalms show us what to do. Because in that book, you see psalm after psalm after psalm of people in their emotions, fear, sadness, and anger, and they are writing and praying to God their emotions. And so we don't just stuff our emotions, and we don't just vent our emotions to people. We pray them. We pray our emotions to God, and the psalms are a great example of that, how God wants us to handle emotions is to bring them to him, first and foremost. And then through that, they become sanctified and used in the way he wants us to use them for his glory and for his kingdom. You guys have some questions. It is late, so pick like maybe three or so of those questions and close up for your, in your discussion. <laughs>